everyone, and thank you for joining me again today for the Finding Hope After Loss podcast. My goal is to always have the show be beneficial to you. I want you to hear the stories of loss and infertility to know that you are not alone in your journey, and to also hear the stories of hope and life after loss so you know that life can move forward again and that you can have hope again after going through infertility and loss. And if there are ever any topics that you would like to hear on the show, you can always email me at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at journeyforjasmine.com, or you can always send me a message on Instagram or Facebook at journeyforjasmine. So today I am talking with Michelle. She went through infertility, including multiple rounds of IUI and IVF, and she also experienced a miscarriage and the neonatal loss of her daughter due to her being born early because Michelle had preeclampsia. Ultimately, she used a surrogate and was able to have her living child. After the loss of her daughter, she was inspired to create a nonprofit, the Colette Louise Tisdale Foundation, in honor of her daughter, and it now helps other families who are going through pregnancies with complications, pregnancies um, that end in a NICU stay, and people who have experienced loss. Hello, everyone. Today, I am here with Michelle. Michelle, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So I am 41, um, mom to three, uh, one living child who um, will be three in July. And um I run a nonprofit that my husband and I created after the loss of our daughter. And we provide financial assistance to families um, in what we kind of see are the three stages of Colette's life. Um, So um, high-risk pregnancy, pregnancy with complications, NICU, um, and loss. And... um, yeah. And I, you know, my, my son keeps me, the foundation keeps me busy. My son keeps me busy. Um, and then I like reading, I like, um, movies, TV shows, um, always binging something and, um, yeah. And just kind of trying to carve out some time for me. And, you know, I think all moms can relate to that of, um, you know, trying not to lose yourself in motherhood and, and also losing yourself a little bit in motherhood. So, yeah, <laughs> that's definitely a struggle, I think, for a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, for Do sure. Do you have a favorite TV show that you're watching, like, right now? So my husband and I are watching Ghosts, which is a really, like, funny show. We just happened to be watching something else that, like, was advertising constantly for it. And so we decided to try it out. And it's just really funny and um, really good acting. And so, yeah. That's kind of my favorite. I've seen the commercials for that. So I yeah. kind of wanted to try it. So that, that makes me want to go watch it. Yeah, no, it was, that was kind of the same thing. We had seen a lot of commercials for it and I was like, kind of thinking about it. And then one day my husband was like, you want to watch it and try it? And I was like, sure, why not? And <laughs> we loved it. And so we're binging that now. But, yeah. So can you talk a little bit about your um, infertility and loss journey? Sure. Sure. Um, so our journey was filled with a lot of obstacles. Um, so we started trying um, very quickly after we got married. Uh, and no, like, anticipated, like, concerns. Um, you know, we were both fairly healthy people. Um, I was 34 when we got married. Um, and so I definitely felt that, like, ticking time bomb you know, biological clock that, um, I think the pressure is on about that. Um, but otherwise, you know, no reason to think it wouldn't just kind of happen. Um, and it didn't. And so we finally, after, um, about six months or so of trying, uh, I was like, let's just go see if there's some issue that we can figure out. And, um, so we went and got tested and they gave us a diagnosis of infertility, but completely unknown reasons. Um, so everything was kind of, everything was good with both of us. Um, there was some room to improve some numbers here and there, but like by all logic, we should have been able to conceive. There was nothing preventing us. Um, and so, um, our first doctor, um, we went through two doctors, so two, um, REs. So 
our first Ari uh, wanted to go to IVF right away. I had, um, I just had some hesitations about it. Um, I was raised Catholic and I just couldn't foresee doing it. Um, so we did IUIs, um, medicated. Uh, I was miserable. Um, the meds just were crazy for me and I wasn't getting support in terms of like, I was telling the doctors and they were saying, oh, you shouldn't have that reaction. I was like, well, I'm having it. So <laughs> you want to do something about it? And um, after doing several IUIs, um, I just sort of kind of came to the conclusion of we were doing this, the meds were messing with me enough and we were doing it for a very low success rate. And so um, I got okay with doing IVF and that's what we did. Um, I got pregnant on the first round of IVF. And so we thought, oh, this is great. This just seems like that's what we needed. Um, and then miscarried um, in really two parts. So I'm, I miscarried on um, the Friday before Mother's Day. Um, and they saw a gestational sac, um, but no baby. And so they told us we had lost and I had been bleeding. And that's why we had gone in. And then they took blood work and they said, you have to come back to do follow-up blood work just to make sure we think you're passing naturally, um, but we just need to make sure. And when I did the repeat blood work, my um, numbers had actually risen significantly. And so they said, come back in, You know, we're gonna do an ultrasound. We may end up having to do a DNC. And that ultrasound, um, so now we're the Wednesday after Mother's Day, uh, was they found a heartbeat. And, um, so they were like, oh, never mind. Uh, you are pregnant. So go back on all the meds that you were off and everything. Um, and really, you know, completely threw us for a curve. Um, my husband, who's normally, normally a very, very cautious driver, um, to the point where I'm like, could you like speed a little bit? Um, he almost got us into an accident leaving the fertility center because we were so just like, what happened? Um, and then that night, uh, I felt a massive gush of blood. Um, and then I, I ended up in the ER, um, cause I had fully bleeding and I had completely miscarried. There was no gestational sac, nothing. Um, so that was, um, our sweet pea, which was just the nickname that we had, um, based on size of the baby at the time. And so I was about seven and a half weeks for that second part of it. Um, I had very vivid dreams during that pregnancy of twins. Um, we only implanted one embryo, but I had very vivid dreams of twins. Um, and we've asked Dr. Since, and they said it might have very well been twins. Um, and that I lost one and then lost the other, but we don't know. Um, and we tried again and, you know, kind of, I think once you've done IVF once, you just think like, oh, this is like, they're going to do the same thing. It's going to work the same way. Um, and the only difference that really we had made was um, we got the embryos genetically tested and we hadn't previously. Um, and that one did not take. And then we were out of embryos. Um, and I was, I was frustrated with our fertility place and I wanted to leave. And we found a new doctor um, who was awesome and, you know, wonderful. And so we did another egg retrieval and another um, transfer. And that was in December of 2017. Um, and I got pregnant and, you know, pretty normal pregnancy. I mean, I was sick all the time. Um, I think the biggest miss, you know, named thing is morning sickness because if it had just been in the morning, that would have been one thing. But when it's all day and you're like, please just don't let me throw up again. Um, but otherwise it was a pretty normal pregnancy. You know, I just, I went through all the, you know, normal things I did and, you know, everything. Um, when I was 21 weeks pregnant, I went to a standard OB appointment and my blood pressure was 180 over 110. And they tried it, you know, they, they had me wait for a little while and they tried it again, and it never budged from that range. It was, you know, a couple points up and a couple points down, but um, it was always in that really high range. Um, so my OB told me to um, go to labor and delivery, go to the hospital. And, you know, she stayed really calm. 
Um, and I'll be honest with you, I hadn't seen what the actual reading was. Um, I just knew it was high, but I didn't know what that meant. And she was very calm. She was like, okay, you know, just go. Um, you may want to stop and get something to eat and then go. And, you know, so that's what we did. Um, when we were leaving, um, my sister, so my sister and I are super close, my best friend. And so she had some intuition. I told her very little, but she had had some intuition. And so she called me and she was like, what happened? And I was like, well, they're telling us to go over to labor and delivery. Um, cause my blood pressure is a little high. And I had in my hands the like after visit summary. And as I started walking, wind came and kind of opened it up for me, it was folded in half. Um, and that was when I saw the reading. And then that was like, that was not what I had expected. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I would have thought I would have felt with that high of a blood pressure. Um, and so we went to labor and delivery and they um, ended up admitting me uh, with a diagnosis of severe preeclampsia. And I didn't know what that meant um, at that point in my life, um, which seems so funny because now I feel like I know preeclampsia so well. The only thing I knew about preeclampsia was that there is an old ER episode that a woman dies of preeclampsia in the emergency room. Um, and that was the only thing I knew about it, right? I just didn't know what else it was. Um, so that was really scary to like just live in that and not understand what was happening. Um, so my obese partner who was on call uh, came in and finally, you know, she was, she had been busy with some deliveries and she said, um, has anyone sat you down and told you what this means? And I said, no. And she said, okay, well, you're being admitted, um, which I had already known. And she said, and you're going to be here until you deliver. Um, and so like frame of reference, it was the evening of May 8th and I wasn't due till September 7th. Um, and so, you know, that just, I mean, talk about one of those moments that just like changes everything and, you know, goes through that. And so um, I spent three weeks in the hospital, a little over three weeks. Um, when I had was first admitted, I had an ultrasound and um, Colette was measuring about two weeks behind. Um, they, the maternal fetal medicine doctor and the neonatologist came in and they said, you know, listen, an ultrasound is not a perfect system. There are discrepancies. And so usually within a week we're we feel like it's okay. So really, we're honestly only talking about a week behind. Um, it's concerning, but it's not the end of the world. And we're, what we're hoping is that once we regulate your blood pressure, there will be just some catch up of growth. Um, and so that was the plan. I was just going to stay there. If they could not control my blood pressure, they would have to deliver. Um and we had a couple scares of that, but they usually, you know, they were able to deal with IV meds um, to get it back down. Uh, and then if not, we're just going to wait and see. And, you know, kind of like my job was just to like cook this baby as long as possible. Um, and so the repeat ultrasound that they did, um, not only had there not been any catch up, but there had been no growth in the three weeks. And so she was measuring very behind at that point. Uh, and the recommendation was to deliver saying there was more they could do. The doctors could do on the outside than they could while I was carrying her. Um, and so at 24 weeks, five days, um, emergency C-section, a classical. So it was cut both ways. Um, and, you know, she came out and we, we didn't even know. I mean, we had made it to 24 weeks with viability. So that was the, that was the awesome part, you know, like we'd made it that far. Um, but, you know, she was measuring so small that they told us like, we don't know if um, the smallest tube we have doesn't fit her. Like we can't do much to save her. Um, and so we knew all these things coming in and, and doing that um, the second to smallest tube fitter. Uh, so, you know, it seemed things were good. Uh, she was whisked straight to the NICU. And that's where she spent her short life of nine days, ups and downs, um, all over the place. 
ultimately uh, the ventilator that they put microcremies that are that small. She was just over a pound when she was born. Um, and they put them on a, a ventilator that's very intense um, to get their lungs, you know, up and running basically. Uh, it's very intense and, and the fact of like long, like prolonged use of it can start to shred the lungs. Um, and that was basically what happened. They could never get her onto the other ventilator. Um, they tried, you know, I don't even know how many times and, uh, her numbers would drop, would drop and they would have to put her back on the original. And so, um, eventually her lungs had just been, you know, essentially shredded, um, and could not support her anymore. And, um, and so, we, you know, nine days later, we finally got to hold her for the first time, uh, surrounded by our families, um, in a private room. And that was the first time we held her was as she was dying in our arms. Um, and you know, I mean, you know, I'm sure most listeners know, like that feeling, you know, is just, it's so much, I mean, it's indescribable and it's all consuming and it feels surreal, um, and all of it. And so, you know, kind of just living in that of, you know, I still remember the next day when at one point my husband and I both woke up, you know, probably, you know, 4am or whatever, and looked at each other. And I remember one of us said to the other, that didn't really happen. Right. Like that was a bad dream that we had um, because that's what it felt like. It was really hard to understand that that had happened. Um, and so, um, and I think, you know, for me, I know, and, and um, my husband has, has said similar things, but for me, I, I really, um, once we made it past, you know, 24, 48 hours, 72 hours, like, I was not thinking she was going to die. I was anticipating she was going to come home with a whole host of medical issues. And I was in, I was thinking of things like disabilities and ramps and, oh, we don't have a bedroom on the first floor, but could we create a bedroom on the first floor? And what would that look like? Um, and I was thinking all of those kinds of things, uh, but I was never thinking that she was going to die once we made it past those few kind of, you know, kind of days. Um, and I think that that's, that's something that like, I, I do spend a lot of time telling medical professionals that we need to address that and we need to be honest um, and say, you know, there is still a risk uh, because I, I've met so many parents that have lost similar to us, you know, whether that be, you know, a couple of weeks, a couple of days, a couple of months, you know, um, and that can still happen. And I think that that's, that's really scary. We don't say it. And I think then, you know, parents who do suffer these losses are particularly struggling um, because they're just shocked and, you know, on top of grief. Um, and so, you know, we grieved, we did everything. Um, I became in some ways obsessed with starting this nonprofit um, and really decided it had to launch on her due date of September 7th. And so she died May 31st. Um, and I became obsessive with that. And I think that was part of just channeling the grief and the emotions. Um, I also, just because of the timing, I don't know if it was, I may have had a postpartum depression, anxiety, something. Um, but because it was happening kind of like simultaneously with the grief, I don't know what was, what was grief, what was that? and how that played together. And, and, and in the long run, I guess it, um, it was all about coping and figuring out how to manage it. So I guess identifying it as such doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah. And, you know, like, you know, healing from a major surgery and trying to live in it emotionally was a lot. Um, but we launched the nonprofit on, her due date, um, which was really important to me. And I think really gave me some direction and some meaning of what, um, I was going to do next because I was like, I was definitely lost and did not know 
what to do, you know, next. Um, and then I spent that summer and I ran around to every doctor I could imagine because I was convinced something was wrong with me and that I had like that, whatever was wrong with me had caused all of these problems. And so I ran around to every doctor I could imagine, you know, I, I had a colonoscopy, you know, and I was 36. Um, and you know, with no risk factors, no family history, anything like that. Um, but went and basically, you know, pushed and went and got all these tests and, and found out nothing was wrong. And, um, and that was frustrating. And so then we went back in after, um, her due date had passed. We had decided that we would, we would just kind of wait and see. And then we went and had a preconception visit with maternal fetal medicine doctors. And honestly, you know, there wasn't a lot that they could tell us that would make things different in the, in the future. Um, and, you know, they worked with us for a long time, but, you know, I think this is where we can see that this is, you know, these kinds of things are so under researched and just, there's not enough money that is given to anything really to women's health. Um, including pregnancy and infant um, mortality and all of that. And so we decided to try naturally um, through the end of the year, that year, so 2018. And then we would um, go back and do another transfer in the new year. And so we tried naturally, you know, I think just hoping that maybe that was going to work. And and one of the reasons why, um, we decided to do that was we weren't like emotionally ready yet to do IVF. Um, and then also there is some increased risk of preeclampsia with IVF. Um, what they don't know is if, if it's IVF itself in that process, or if it's just generally the patients who go to IVF would be more at risk for preeclampsia anyways. And they don't know. Um, but you know, I was trying to control what we could of risk factors and, you know, I couldn't change my age, um, but uh, we could try doing that. And so we did, it didn't work. And then in the new year, we did um, another transfer and that did not take. And when we found that out, um, my husband was in tears and I just felt this huge sense of relief um, that I wasn't pregnant. And, that was really like shocking to me um, because I of course wanted to have another child. I, I wanted to have a child that was biologically ours um, that we could bring home. And so saying, you know, kind of admitting that like I was relieved not to be pregnant was scary and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I really sat with that and I didn't say that to anybody um, for probably probably about a month plus, um, you know, just really sitting in, what does that mean? Um, I had, I had asked my husband, um, prior to us finding out the results, I had said, I think I need a break. And he had agreed that if it didn't take, we would take a small break. And so we were on that. Um, and I really just was struggling with what does this mean? And, you know, what is it doing this? And, um, and finally I just, you know, finally blurted out to my husband. I said, I think we need to use, I was like, I think I really want to use a gestational carrier. Um, so I surprised him because shortly after Claire had died, we had talked about some of the options. That was one of the things on the table. And at that point I had said, Oh, hell no, no one else is going to carry my baby. Um, and so when I said it at first, I know I definitely threw him off because he was like, wait a minute, how did this, wait, what? Um, but, you know, I was just really where I was at and I really felt like I had to like re, you know, restructure. Um, I have a friend who went through infertility and she says, you know, it's moving the goalpost. Um and so, you know, you're never going to do this. And then all of a sudden you get to this point and you're like, oh yeah, maybe I'll do that. And, you know, it was just doing that. And so, um, you know, we talked to a lot of people. We talked to a lot of couples who had gone through surrogacy um, and, you know, just definitely 
felt like this was the the best thing for us, the best chances to bring home a healthy baby and the best chances for me mental health wise, um, because pregnancy seems so terrifying. And so, um, we found, um, we found an agency we liked, we found a gestational carrier that was awesome and did all of that. And she got pregnant on the first round and that is our son who turns three in July. Um, and you know, it was really just, it was an amazing experience. Um, definitely filled with loss. The loss of caring was tough. Um, and you know, and then shortly after her 20 week ultrasound, we were plunged into COVID and, um, that changed things. And, you know, with COVID restrictions, we didn't know until about, I want to say like 32, 33 weeks that we could both be in the delivery room. We didn't know that, um, you know, and, um, that was scary too, because we were making plans with, you know, 16 layers of possibilities. Right. So it was okay. So if I go in, if I'm in the delivery room, but my husband can't be, what does that look like? Um, and then also, um, the attorney that we had worked with called us and said, um, you need to have a short-term guardianship because if one or both of you has COVID, um, who's going to take care of the baby. And, um, you know, it was just kind of crazy, but, um, we brought him home. Um, he is healthy. He is amazing. Um, all of it. Um, and when he was about a year old, we looked into, um, doing surrogacy again. Actually, we looked into whether or not I would be, I would be pregnant again or try to be, get pregnant again or surrogacy. And ultimately, um, our same surrogate was available and willing. And so we started a journey with her. Um, it was not successful. Um, there were several canceled cycles, um, a transfer that didn't take, um, and a bunch of other delays and issues. And we ultimately, you know, kind of had set up at some point and said we could handle one more obstacle and one more thing. Um, and then the doctor called to say they were going to cancel the cycle. And that was our decision to end that and to say, we're, we're, you know, we have one living child and that's what we have. Um, that makes me really sad. Um, you know, I had never, um, thought we would be in this situation. Um, it makes me sad that I don't get to raise my daughter and the way I thought I was going to, um, and that he doesn't have the traditional sibling, you know, he still has a sibling and we talk about flat all the time and we do all that stuff. Um, but he doesn't have a sibling the way that I had it or the way that my, my husband had it. Um, and the way that most of his friends will have it. And, and that's, you know, that's difficult and that's sad. And, um, and so that's another loss that, you know, we've been through. Um, but, you know, we, we've survived it to this point, I guess. And, um, you know, we have an incredible living child and memories of a daughter and that still lives on in our lives, um, just very differently than we thought. Well, you definitely had quite a journey. I mean, a yes. little bit of, of everything in there, it seems. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So did you, was it the, um, preeclampsia? Were you more at risk to have that again, if you were to try to get pregnant again? Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, I just felt like the answers that we were given, um, you know, they talked to you about baby aspirin. Um, I was kind of, I was slightly paranoid because I had been doing baby aspirin with the fertility center when I miscarried. So I was a little concerned, like, did that somehow you know, cause it or like put me more at risk for that. I, you know, obviously I don't think that it did. Um, but I was like, I don't know. And then, um, the study on baby aspirin and for preeclampsia is not like a huge study or anything. It's a fairly small study. And so I just didn't, I didn't know that that was enough. And, and when I brought that up to maternal fetal, um, 
they said, um, well, starting at 28 weeks, we would do more um, monitoring. And I said, I've never made it to 28 weeks of a pregnancy. So I don't know that I can. Um, and, you know, I think that's where, you know, I talked about the, the um, research is, you know, I could see in his face when he was talking to us that he wanted that to be a comfort. And, and yet he understood where we were coming from of that wasn't a comfort because 28 weeks was not a given that we were going to get to that. And, you know, I think that, that was really, um, really hard place to be in is to say, yeah, there's extra monitoring at a point that's four weeks past the most pregnant I've ever been. And, um, I don't know, you know, and, and, and I still think about it every once in a while. Um, I, I won't say, I think we are, I think we are done with our, our family at this point. Um, but I still harbor wishes of, you know, an accidental pregnancy of, you know, not planned pregnancy that is just all of a sudden, you know, totally fine and totally normal. And, um, and all of those things, like I still, I still have those visions and those desires and, um, and to have a full pregnancy and, and to have all those experiences. Um, I still want all that. I mean, that didn't go away just because we made a decision that we are likely, you know, that we are essentially done um, trying. And, you know, I think definitely going through infertility and loss, I mean, you get robbed of that typical pregnancy experience that, you know, everybody else seems to just get to enjoy like, Oh, I just, Mm -hmm. I want to get pregnant. I get pregnant. I have the baby and that's right. You know, and, and we don't, we don't get that. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's strange too. I think in that process of what you sort of miss and mourn. Um, I remember at one point, uh, because of the way my C-section was and I was cut, um, they won't let me go into labor because, uh, labor could rip my uterus. And, and so I knew that. And, you know, at one point I remember saying, I will never get to experience labor. And, you know, the people who were around me who had gone through labor were like, uh, that's not a bad thing. And I was like, yeah, but you guys got to experience what that felt like. Like, I will never feel that right like I will understand the most you know just you know as partners and non-birthing your parents you know no but I don't I won't know what that actually feels like and um and that's really that's tough you know it's something that most moms have experienced and you know knowing from this point like I, okay you gave birth but you didn't experience this and you never will. Um, that's really hard. Right. And, and yes, I know that there are probably women who had totally normal pregnancies and tough labors. And they're like, uh, that's a win. You never experienced this, you know, kind of thing. And I, and I get that. Um, and if I was in that position, I'd probably say the same thing. Uh, but it's just part of that normal experience of doing that or, you know, in doing infertility treatments, right the way you find out you are pregnant is very clinical. You are getting a phone call from a lab and you know when you're getting a phone call. And so, you know, the stories that friends and family have had about, you know, how they figured out they were pregnant or how they told their partner or anything like that is something that I, I lost out on. And, you know, and, and that's, you know, again, I mean, there's, there are minor things in a lot of, for a lot of people, Um, But not getting those experiences really feels tough, especially when there's so many of those kind of like, you know, little points that just add up to, um, to your story of loss. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. And I think people who haven't gone through it, they just don't, they won't ever understand that, you know, it's like, right oh, good. You didn't have to go through the pain of labor. And you're like, yeah, but I would really love to go through the pain of labor. Right. You know? exactly. Let me decide yeah. for myself that it's hard, you know? Right. Like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. All of it. And, you know, um, so I think that that's, um, or like, you know, I remember, um, 
so uh, like me, like talking to a friend and, and saying who was pregnant and I don't know, saying something like, oh yeah, you know, that sounds like pregnancy, whatever. And then she was like, yeah, you know, and now that I'm in my third trimester and I was like, I've never experienced a third trimester pregnancy, you know, I mean, right. And you're like, you know, and I'm sure that there would be, there would be plenty of women who would say, uh, yeah, you don't want to experience it. Like, it's not, you know, great when you're getting, you know, uncomfortable and all of that. Um, but again, it's just like taking that decision from us and that, you know, that experience from us just feels so much happier um, when the journey hasn't been easy. Well, and I know you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, you tried to control the aspects that you could control. And right. I, I know I struggle with that too, because I want to be in control of everything all the time. <laughs> and, you know, it just going through all this makes you realize how little you actually have control over. Right. Yeah. 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 I definitely feel like along the whole journey, but I think, think definitely after losing Colette and sort of that feeling of, you know, like I was, I was the model student, right. I knew how to like, this is what I had to do. And I did X, Y, and Z. And that's what this resolve came. And when you're trying to get pregnant all of a sudden for the first time, there is no, you do A, B, and C and you get a baby. There is none of that. Like you may do A, B, and C and you may get a baby and you may not. And you know, that was really hard for me to like think of and, um, you know, and to just be like, you know, I, I remember researching, uh, you know, like crazy, really uh, trying to find, okay, what is it that I can do that will ensure this? Um, and then realizing there wasn't anything, right? You know, um, and I think, you know, unfortunately we live in a, an age where, you know, if you do a deep dive on the internet, you can find people who, you know, have the magic answer. Right. And, um, I still remember being in the parking lot of the grocery store and I had fertility diets printed out and putting together my list and saying, you know, and I forget what it was, but, you know, oh, this, di this diet says to eat this, but this other diet says don't eat that. Um, and so, okay, all right. I don't know what should, what should I do. And, and kind of doing that. And my husband turning to me and saying, you are making yourself crazy trying to make all of these. Like, he's like, you have six, I had six diets printed out. And he said, and they all contradict each other. And he was like, there's no, you know, one cure. Um, and you know, that was really hard trying to, you know, let go of that and say like, okay, I'm just going to have to, um, to trust the process and, you know, and it's a process that can betray you over and over again. And there isn't that fix. And I think that's really hard for a lot of people. Before you went through your journey, did you ever think that it would be hard to get pregnant or did you ever have any, any of those feelings? No, I mean, you know, I, I, um, I mean, I was a pretty, uh, you know, I was pretty regular with my periods. I, um, you know, I was fairly healthy. Um, my husband was fairly healthy. We didn't have any, you know, chronic conditions, anything like that. Um, so no, I didn't really anticipate that it would, take longer than, you know, a few months. Um, and so, yeah. So I think that was just like a shock of, oh, you can like think everything is fine and then still be surprised by it. Um, you know, and I think just, and, and you don't know what it's going to be. Right. So like, I think of my sister and I, um, so my sister and I both have had to have our right ovaries removed well before this. Um, my sister was 17. I was 30, I think, um, 29, 30. Uh, and so my sister had a, um, um, a tumor or is, yes, that pushed on her ovary. And so she had to have that removed. Um, and then I had a cyst and a torsion. So it wrapped around my ovary. And so like, that was really scary. You know, I mean, I know my sister was scared at the time, but she was 17 is a little bit different than when you're 30. 
Um, and I was really, you know, terrified about that and, um, you know, really spent a lot of time talking about what that meant and how that affected my fertility if it did and was told it didn't. Um, and so, you know, with one ovary and being in my late thirties, I had really great egg numbers. Right. And so, um, I still remember, um, we had, we had a couple of embryos left and I decided I wanted to do another egg retrieval after clit just to have, you know, more. And, and part of it was also to, um, I just wanted to ensure that like, once, once I knew my blood pressure was regulated, that I was doing more embryos with that regulated blood pressure, just in case that was an, that was a factor. Um, and there's just so little that they don't know for sure if that is or not. Um, but you know, again, kind of the, like, you're going to control what you can control. So I was like, all right, let's do this. Um, and <laughs> though I went from 35 to 37, that I had done it. And RRE said, you know, there's usually a pretty significant drop in those two years. Um, and I didn't have a drop at all. And, you know, the RE is like, I have patients 10 years younger than you are um, with two ovaries who would kill for these numbers. So I had really great numbers. Um, obviously, you don't know about egg quality and there's all that kind of stuff. Um, but my sister, you know, same kind of thing we're sisters and she had a low ovarian reserve when she went to go find out. Um, and so, you know, which shocked me, you know, when she called me and told me, she was like, yeah, I know. She was like, when they told me that, that's not at all what I anticipated based on your, on like your experiences. Um, and I think that that's like also really, you know, for as much as a lot of this is genetics, it's also even that's a crapshoot, you know, um, how you end up with that. So I think it's, it's just, there's so many unknowns and yet in a world that we make it seem like you're going to get pregnant by snapping your fingers and, you know, um, and no, that's not really what happened for <laughs> a lot of us. And yeah. I know they spend all that time trying to teach you how to not get pregnant. And then it's like, well, I wish it was that easy. You know, I know, I know. my husband hates when I say this. I always say like, if I had known that I would have had more fun when I was single. Like, and he's always he's like, like, okay, I'm, now he's like, I don't, he's like, I get what you're saying, but I don't really like that. You say that. I'm like, oh, like, I don't think that's what they meant by that. No. Right. But I'm like, well, I would have though, you know, I was, you know, I, yeah. So anyways. So were you able to get, um, pictures or any, um, like handprints and footprints or that kind yeah. of thing? Yeah. So we had handprints and footprints. Um, we were able to wait and we got, now I lay me down to sleep came and, um, took pictures. Uh, the hospital had these gorgeous angel gowns. So she was in, you know, the nurse took her in and dressed her. And, um, so we have really gorgeous pictures of her, um, you know, after she died in the angel gown. Um, and those are, you know, very treasured photos um, because we have so few, we have, I think I did a count at one point, I think we have like 25 pictures um, of her. And that includes like in NICU where you can't see her face because of tubes and all of that. Um, and, you know, through the isolate, you know, right, like not great pictures because it's through the class and all that. Um, and then the pictures after she died and, you know, those are really all very treasured photos because of that. And we had, uh, now I'd lay me down to sleep, come do pictures for us too. And I, yeah, I can't speak highly or more highly of them. Like I just appreciated them so much for, you know, coming to do that in a time that you can't even like think, you know, right. it's just really nice to have those later. Cause you're right. We have so few, it's all we have. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, what I'm really grateful for is, um, our families, you know, when they come in and tell you this, that they, there's, you know, people will come and take pictures, at least for me, that seemed like very odd. And, and why would you like, why would you want that? Um, and you know, our families were very much like you should do it. And I, I remember us doing it 
largely thinking, I don't know if we'll ever take a look at them. And my husband was like, I don't know that I ever want to see them. Um, and when they came, I wanted to see, you know, when we got them, I wanted to see them. And, um, so we waited and we looked at them together and, um, we both were really grateful that we had done that. And, you know, and that we had people in the room who were like, you need to do this. Um, because I think that that's, you know, that's something, and I, and I know, you know, this happened, um, a couple of years ago when, uh, um, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen lost and they shared pictures and, and they got a lot of, um, criticism for it. Um, you know, some praise, but a lot of criticism and, you know, trying to explain that and, and saying, I mean, I, rem- I remember being high schoolish age. Um, and at the time I would get my hair cut by a woman who did it out of her basement and did everybody in the neighborhood. And her telling me about a family that I think it was like three or four kids already and on their fourth or fifth child. And that's why I can't remember that exactly um, was born, stillborn. And she was telling me the story of, and then, you know, they brought the kids in and they took family photos. And I remember in my head being horrified at the idea. Like, why would you do that? Um, and sort of just always thinking that. And then when you experience it, it feels very different and it's, it's a very different feeling. And so, yeah, it is a little like, you know, sort of subjective, like, you know, just looking at the facts, it's a little odd that you're taking pictures of somebody after they died. Right. Um, but it's also for babies, it's so different, right. You don't have those family photos like you do of, you know, parents and grandparents and all of that. You don't have any of those photos. And so a lot of times that's your only chance to have any of them or, um, you know, any memories. And I think that that's really, it's a very unique experience. And I think a lot of people don't understand. And obviously on some level, I hope they never understand so that they right. have gone through it. Um, but yeah, I think it's really, yeah, just really important to have those those avenues and those ways to remember. That's the like number one thing I try to encourage anybody who's going through a loss, like take the pictures, even if you don't look at them tomorrow, a year from now, you know, whenever, you know, at least you have them. And I think eventually right. you will want to look at them because right. we didn't look for a couple of weeks either. I was like, I can't, I just can't do it. Like I know they're there, but I can't look at them. And now I, you know, I still get sad seeing them, yeah. but I'm grateful to have them. Yeah. And I'm really grateful we did. Um, so there's a kind of a fancier um, baby and kid photographer around us. And what they are like famous for is um, they do, what are they called? What is it called? There's a name for it. Now I can't, it's totally escaping me, but they do basically like, um, it'll be like a, a, a nine pictures, like three by three. Um, and it's baby part photos. And so it's like, you know, their feet and, you know, um, you know, it might be a, a cute little baby butt picture and, you know, those kinds of things. It depends on, you know, what they got and and what parents choose. And so we did one for our son. And while we were choosing the photos after the photo shoot and everything, um, a couple weeks later, uh, all of a sudden I looked at it and I was like, there's, there's some pictures of Colette we could do this with. And so... I asked them, I said, would you be willing to take photos that were taken elsewhere by, you know, the now I lay me down to sleep and to do the same thing, you know, framed and whatever. And they were really like, they were like, yes, let's do it. And so it's really nice in our house. We have both of our kids, um, you know, their baby parts up on the wall and it's, you know, it's really, it's really sweet. It's really, um, it's really beautiful that we have both of them um, and that they have this, you know, we have this memory of these moments in time of what they look like. And, you know, I think that that's something that I was very grateful. We had the photos and I was even more grateful once we could do, do the same thing. So there was just a very similar aspect to it. Um, and it's interesting to look at them and to see, you know, you can certainly see, um, so the big joke is, so Claude had my nose. That was, um, something that, you know, 
I, I knew and, and everyone who saw her said kind of like right away was like, oh my God, she's got Michelle's nose or she's got mom's nose. Um, and when our son Elliot was born, um, my husband said, he has Colette's nose. And I said, that was my nose first. So it's, it's really my nose, but okay. Um, but it's interesting to see those pictures and to see the little like you know, when you look at those and you see the little curves and the, you know, this and that and and realize how similar that they do look in a lot of cases. Um, and I think that that's, you know, I think any parent does that with when they have more than one child of just like, where do they look alike? Where do they have, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's really pretty that we have that. And I'm, I'm very grateful that um, we had the now I lay me down and then that the photographer we worked with um, was willing to take those photos and and really, you know, crop them down and, and um, come up with things so that we had two similar ones. You know, they're not the same, but um, yeah. Yeah, I love that you were able to do that. I I think it's important that we, you know, try to include them in, in our pictures around the house and things like that. Right. And it's nice to have it feel normal. Like, you know, you have both of them there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Do you want to talk a little bit about your nonprofit? Sure. Yeah. So um, it's the Colette Louise Tisdall Foundation. And um, we are really just trying to improve outcomes. So pregnancy, childbirth, um, infancy, and then help in the grieving process. And we do it. We're most known through our financial assistance program, but we also do um, advocacy and education. And I think education is so key because I thought I was pretty knowledgeable on most of these issues. And I was shocked to find out so many things that I didn't realize. Like I did not know what the status of maternal mortality was in the US right now. And I didn't know all of that stuff. And so, you know, educating about it and then educating about how to address um, when things don't go right, you know? So what do you say to somebody who is experiencing infertility or somebody who has lost? Um, and, or somebody whose, whose child is sick, um, you know, what do you say in those situations? And I think, you know, doing that and then advocacy, I think anything we can do on a bigger front, um, you know, the U S not having paid mandatory paid leave is, you know, ridiculous. And, um, <laughs> so, you know, if we can make those changes, um, you know, cost of childcare is astronomical right now. And, you know, all of those things, I think that's really important. Um, and then our financial assistance program. So uh, we will be celebrating our five-year anniversary officially in September. And we have helped to date um, over 1,700 families um, across the U.S. Uh, so we're a nationwide organization. Um, we have currently helped families in 47 of the 50 states um, and given away over a million dollars in grants. And the need is just, it's so out there. I mean, this is happening to so many families um, where everything is fine until it's not. And, you know, I think that that's really, um, the idea from it came really just uh, in that whole, you know, me being hospitalized aspect. It really came from once the dust settled a little bit sitting in the hospital, thinking how blessed and privileged I was that I wasn't really worried about money. Um, you know, I lost my salary fairly quickly. Um, I did not start my short-term disability until I was born um, because I was hoping to be there for a couple months and, you know, I didn't want to use it up and then have her in NICU and me healing from delivery um, but I didn't have to worry about that. Like I could do that. And, um, and I just thought about how many families could not. And, you know, and that's everything from the family that's barely getting by to the family that is doing pretty well, but can't, you know, um, lose one income or lose half of, the, of an income or anything like that. Um, so yeah, the need has just been overwhelming and I, um, we work hard. We're always trying to raise more money to help more families um, and really just trying to have that impact um, so that, you know, families are getting that support and 
a relief of a little bit of stress in crazy times. I love that you're doing that. You've already helped so many families and, yeah. you know, in a time like this, like money shouldn't have to be the thing that you're worried about, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think that the other part is like, you know, um, when we were first starting this, you know, I remember mentioning it to a couple of people and people saying like, yeah, but what's money going to do? And I was like, when you can't make it work, it, it makes a big difference. And so, you know, we get applications sometimes that say, you know, mom is supposed to be put on bed rest and mom is saying she can't afford to be on bed rest um, or is put in these situations like, okay, I can go on bed rest, but then I'm not working, which means I'm not making rent payments or, you know, putting food on the table is going to be tough, you know, those kinds of things. And those are really crappy conditions to make those decisions in. And, um, you know, or I'm just going to put off this payment, this payment, this payment. And then all of a sudden, you know, getting caught up with everything. Um, and so, you know, we definitely, we're seeing more and more of the impact of COVID. Um, so, you know, where there was eviction moratoriums for a very long time, and most of those have been stopped. And so now, you know, they weren't, they were still in their place, um, for long, you know, long period of time, but now it's coming to huge bills being due and they can't do that. Right. Um, and we're seeing that with utility bills, uh, you know, typically your utilities would just be shut off if you didn't pay after a certain point, but because there's so many, um, stops to those, they've now run up bills, you know, well, sometimes here, like, you know, $2,000, $3,000 in a bill, you know, an electric bill and a gas bill. Um, and then how do you get out from under that? Um, and, you know, so I think there's just been a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of real impacts that this can make. Um, so, yeah. Well, if people wanted to find more information about the nonprofit, uh, do you have like a website or? Yeah. Yeah. Our website is colettelouise.com. So, um, Colette is one L and two T's, um, louise.com. And I can be reached. I'm Michelle two L's, um, at colettelouise.com. And, um, yeah, we, we'd love to help. Um, we, our ability to give is based on funds. So, um, every donation matters and really has an impact and we have worked hard, um, so all of the donations go 100% to families. Um, we have worked out that we have donors that cover any admin, um, and overhead costs. And so they're going straight to families in need. Um, and you know, that's really something that I, I want to keep for as long as, you know, we're around. Um, cause I think that's really important too, is that people know they're donating and it's going to families directly. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today and sharing about your wonderful nonprofit. Yes. And thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate um, getting to share, you know, a little bit about all of our kids. Thank you so much, Michelle, for sharing your story with us. An important thing you touched on was the lack of resources for parents who are facing a pregnancy with complications or a pregnancy that ends in a NICU stay. We're not able to simply always leave our jobs and just survive without the income. Many of us don't get large amounts of paid leave that would help cover this either. And we're not always pointed in the direction of resources that could help us. And there are actually so many nonprofits out there, just like Michelle's, that help families in these situations, yet most of us don't even know about any of them. Certainly none of us are prepared to go through the physical and the emotional struggles of going through infertility and loss, and maybe even less prepared for the financial aspect of it being added on. Especially if you end up having to spend time in the NICU and pay those bills, or pay bills for a complication during your pregnancy, or having to pay the bills from your loss, the medical care adds up. The time spent not working can add to a large loss of income. And it just becomes a lot to bear on top of the emotional distress that you're already in. I really think there needs to be changes 
Yet it's hard to say what exactly those changes need to be. All I know is that the current system isn't working for so many families. So I just want to leave you with a reminder to do a quick search on the internet to see what resources are available near you. You never know what you might find that can help you out. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. If you like the show, please leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for tuning in, and remember, we are all in this together.